Welcome to the Million Vegan Grandmothers podcast. And I am here with Captain Paul Watson. And I'm also here with my partner, Paul Pappen. And together we're going to be interviewing uh, Captain Watson. So thank you so much for being here, Paul. Well, thank you. My, my pleasure. <laughs> yes. And my partner, Paul, is going to introduce you and uh, give a little bit of your background, even though we can't get that in a quick introduction. Yes, and I'm going to um, actually take advantage of the about the author blurb that you've got at the back of your new book, Hitman for the Kindness Club. So uh, Captain Paul Watson is a marine conservationist, master mariner, author, educator, and poet. He is the founder of both the Captain Paul Watson Foundation and the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society and co-founder of the Greenpeace Foundation. Born in Ontario, Canada, Captain Watson currently resides in New York City. Well, thank you, Paul, for being here. How would you like to start? What would you like to share with us that's, you know, I mean, we'd really like to talk about your book a little bit, get that out to the world, because it's a really powerful, powerful stories, but also what's changing for the good. We really need to hear some good news. Well, I wrote the book as a collection of uh, short stories, and really it's a tribute to uh, Ida Fleming, and she was the founder of the Kindness Club. This is way back in the 50s and, and the 60s. Now, Ida was the uh, was the wife of the governor, or actually the, the premier of the province of New Brunswick uh, in Canada. Uh, he was actually a conservative premier, but uh, she had uh, her views on, uh, on animal rights and animal welfare well before a lot of people even knew what it was. And uh, she established this group called the Kindness Club. Uh, I think Albert Schweitzer was the honorary president of it. So I was an early member of the uh, the Kindness Club. My mother enrolled me in, in that and would get all the literature. But it was years later uh, in my early 20s uh, when coming back from um, the SEAL campaign uh, where I had led a campaign to protect babies the SEALs, I stopped in to visit her uh, in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and uh, she actually jokingly uh, referred to me as the hitman for the Kindness Club. So that's why I named the book that. It sounds like she was quite an influence in your life. Mm -hmm. Well, she was, uh, along with my mother and my grandfather and and that. And, uh, you know, they instilled um, in their children and grandchildren a uh, respect for, for animals, uh, which was completely opposite to my father, who was actually quite abusive and a, and a hunter. <laughs> So this came by natural, like this came to you naturally, you know, mm -hmm. the, the understanding that these animals were sentient beings and that they deserved love and care and respect and protection of their ecosystems. Yes, but when I was uh, 10 years old, I, you know, living in a rural area in Canada, I had the opportunity to spend the entire summer swimming with a family of beavers. And, uh, you know, that was great fun. And uh, the next uh, summer when I was 11, I went back and they were gone. And I began to ask questions, found out trappers had taken them all during the winter. So I got quite angry. So that winter, I walked the trap lines and, uh, you know, broke the traps, released animals from the traps and uh, threw the traps into the um, into the river. Uh, so that's really my beginning as, a, as an activist. And I guess I've been doing the same thing all my life. The traps have just gotten bigger. <laughs> yeah, the traps are going These leg hold traps were pretty vicious, uh, though. So I took a great deal of enjoyment in uh and destroying them. And I, I didn't really realize at the time how dangerous that was because, you know, these trappers get pretty angry and everything, but they never, they never found out who was doing it. 
Well, it's very interesting. You know, my father grew up in Northern Ontario. He was uh, raised in Finnish logging camps. And, you know, he was a very gentle man, but that's what he was taught at the age of eight, that if he was to feed his family, he was to trap. And I remember, you know, he, we didn't grow up with a lot of money and he, we lived on moose meat as, as our, as our flesh food. And I remember him saying when he didn't need to feed his family anymore, he said that would be the last animal he would kill. So I think it's very, we're in very powerful times. I think a lot of humanity is waking up and understanding we do not need to eat any, any other beings to be well. Hence the, you know, million vegan grandmothers coming together globally to, to say, you know, for, for our grandchildren, we will not do this. And you're a grandfather, so you're going to join the million vegan grandmothers and the grandfathers and the wisdom carriers. We would love I, to have you with us. Yeah, I have a, an 11-year-old granddaughter and a seven-year-old grandson, but I also have a, a six-year-old son and a two-year-old son. He just turned two yesterday. Just keep the inspiration going. They're full of life, aren't they? They are. And, uh, you know, I, I've always learned more from my children, I think, than, uh, than, they, than they probably learned from me. <laughs> so we have a few questions to ask you, if you're okay with that, um, in regards to reading the book and some stuff that came up for us. And so we're just going to ask away. And then we'd like you to share, usually, um, yeah, we'd like you to share whatever else you'd like to, you'd like to talk about. Okay, certainly. Okay, um, I guess I'll ask the, the first question. Uh, there's a phrase that appears, uh, I believe, in your book. Um, you talk about the philosophy of aggressive nonviolence, <laughs> which sounds like an oxymoron, but I, having read a good part of your book, I realized that you're always very careful to, you know, to destroy objects, but not to harm people. So that's obviously... The aggression is towards the objects, the boats, the you know, the the traps, etc., and not towards the people. Um, but I just wanted to know um, why you believe um, that works better than, say, passive resistance, which is, of course, a very popular form of uh, activism. Well, so, do you do or do you not think passive resistance works? it's another tactic, but uh, I was a co-founder of Greenpeace and I spent seven years uh, doing what Greenpeace did, which was um, bearing witness, really. I mean, Greenpeace was founded by a coalition of environmentalists and Quakers. So the bearing witness part was very uh, powerful. And uh, But in 1977, when I led a campaign to protect the baby seals off of Labrador, um, a sealer is about to kill a seal. So I rushed rush forward and I grabbed the club out of his hand, threw it in the water and picked up the seal and took it to safety. And I was accused by Greenpeace of theft and vandalism. I had stole the man's property and I destroyed his property. And I said, well, I saved a life. And uh, if I had to do it over again, I would do exactly the same thing. And I said to them, you know, you don't walk down the street and see a woman being raped and take pictures. You don't walk down the street and see a puppy or a kitten being kicked to death and hang a banner. Uh, you have to get involved. You have to intervene. And so I developed a strategy of aggressive nonviolence, which means intervention without causing any physical harm or to the people that you're opposing. And to me, uh, destroying a weapon or any equipment used to take sentient life is an act of nonviolence. If somebody is about to shoot an elephant and you knock the rifle out of their hands and break the rifle, to me, that's an act of nonviolence. 
But in a society that reveres property over life, then, you know, the, the people tend to think that violence against property is even worse than violence against life. And so that's really the distinction. Yeah. And they even extend the concept of property to those animals they're killing. Yeah. When they regard animals as property, certainly. And, uh, you know, I certainly have never regarded animals as anyone's property. Um, I also don't regard land as anybody's property either, because, you know, we're just here for, we, we're just occupying it for a short period of time. And uh, it's always been there and it'll always be here. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for bringing that together, because I think that's what the whole vegan movement has been about and the environmental movement has been about, you know, is that we, we don't have ownership over this precious space and um, other beings. We, we just don't. It's, it's not our right. And, and you know, the, the origin of dominion in the, in the truest sense meant caretaker. It meant caretaker, to caretake over. And so that's what you've been doing. And we thank you for that. All of us, thank you for that. And so you were talking about the baby seal um, hunts and the clubbing, so horrendous. Do you, do you see any shift in that at all? Has there been any change? We made a lot of progress. Uh, they don't kill the white coats anymore, but more importantly, the, there is no market for seal products. Uh, they're banned in Europe, banned in China, banned in Russia. Uh, the only market is in Canada, which is very limited. I mean, the trinkets at airports for tourists or whatever, which then they can't bring into the U.S. If, or else they can be charged if they do. But um, the quota for seals in Canada still is about 400,000 a year but they don't kill that many because there's no market. So the actual kill is between 35,000 and 40,000. And the only reason that happens is because the Canadian government subsidizes the kill to the tune of $20 million a year. So it's a glorified welfare program and it's done for political reasons. It's not done for economic reasons. And uh, the, prime, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau is 100% responsible for this, just like his father, Pierre Trudeau. They were very staunch advocates of, uh, of the seal hunt. I mean, he carries around a seal skin briefcase and has a seal skin coat and considers it a very Canadian thing to, to do. Um, but, you know, Canada has a horrendous record. I, I've always called the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which oversees the seal hunt and fishing and everything. I call it the Department of Fishy Business. And it's but one of the most incompetent bureaucracies in, in the Canadian government and uh, has proven to be so. I mean, under the DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, we've seen the collapse of the, of the cod fishery, the salmon fishery, uh, the decline in, uh, in populations of numerous marine animals. So they're extremely incompetent. And one of the things that motivates them to want to kill seals is their actual, their belief that, the, not, not the government, they know better, but the belief by the fishermen that the seals eat all their fish, and therefore you got to keep the seal populations down, when in fact the reverse is true. If you want a healthy fish population, you need a healthy marine mammal population, because it's a, new, it's a relationship between the prey and the predator. Uh, harp seals, um, hood seals, gray seals, they keep the populations of uh, of uh, you know, uh, things like ulicans, mackerel, um, and other fishes down. And these are the primary predators of young codfish. So when you decrease the population of those marine mammals, you increase the predatory population on cod, for example, which causes a further decline in cod fishery. And, and the cods, the cod collapsed in 1992. It's never recovered. You know, it's a, it's a, and it probably never will, because it's, it's, uh, it's just a case of, 
absolute greed, which is backed up by the Canadian government. I was I was really shocked by that scene in your book where um, I don't know if it was the actual Minister of Fisheries, but a high-ranking official in the in the Ministry of Fisheries, um, who uh, who confronted you uh, on the ice and and seemed very extremely aggressive, was <laughs> swearing at you and threatening you, and um, you know it's it's quite incredible. You know you you have this image of a of a very sort of gentle bureaucratic type running these uh, running these departments, but in fact, they're they're often very uh, deeply invested, obviously, psychologically and financially, probably as well. Was that, that a was a fish officer, actually, uh, that, from the Department of Fish, we, a fish cop, basically, is what he is. But uh, they also worked with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I, you know, I ceased really to be a Canadian in 1977 when I was beaten severely by the sealers on the ice well the two members of the royal canadian mounted police watched the entire thing and did absolutely nothing and then two years later i was um, beaten by the mounties and the fish fisheries police on board one of the ships and i uh, had uh, mounted police officers kicking me in the side and trying to stomp my head uh, the canadian department of fisheries and oceans and the rcmp violently defend the seal hunt and always have and when you get into here, here's the law they actually passed a law against us specifically, and the law is called the Seal Protection Act. And under the Seal Protection Act, it's illegal to witness, photograph, or film a seal being killed. If you approach within a half a nautical mile of a seal hunt, you've just broken the Seal Protection Act. And uh, in 1983, we broke that act uh, by approaching the seal hunt, and we're charged, brought into before what we call Judge Yvonne Mercier, the hanging judge of the seal hunt. And I knew, I knew he was going to find us guilty. We had no defense against this man. So my strategy was to be as aggressively hostile to him as possible. So aggressively hostile that he threw the book at me. I got 15 months in prison for conspiracy to break the Seal Protection Act, 21 months for breaking it. I was fined $75,000. My ship was uh, seized. My crew were all fined. And I was told I wasn't to correspond directly or indirectly with any journalist anywhere in the world for three years. And I was not allowed to enter uh, half of the Canadian uh, provinces. So I got out after nine days on appeal, immediately held a press conference in defiance of the judge. And because of the severity that I knew he was going to give us, the Quebec Court of Appeals threw the whole thing out, saying this was just ridiculously out, out, uh, over, the, over the top. So that was the strategy that, was wor that worked in the court, was to be aggressive in order to get acquitted. Wow, that's amazing. So you had talked about, you know, this idea, this this very unscientific and bizarre idea that killing a certain species in the ocean as if they don't belong there will help people be able to fish other species. And, and again, we read that last night in your book, uh, in the Soviet, you know, and where they were killing all the dolphins. Mm -hmm. And was it was in Japan, yeah. in Japan. And yeah. um and the beautiful end to that story uh, with that, with the whale, I would love to hear that story. You mean when uh, uh, the, the whale that almost killed me or that one? Uh, I think, um, yeah. So, so yeah, that was, you were confronting the Soviets, a whale appeared between your ship and the Soviet ship. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. That's different than the other story about the whale with the Soviets, but you're talking about off the coast of Siberia. Yeah. In 1981, uh, we invaded Soviet Siberia to get evidence on illegal fishing uh, or illegal whaling operations. 
And um, nobody had invaded the Soviet Union since World War II. So when we landed on the beach, there were two Soviet soldiers that were there, but they were patrolling the beach. They didn't even interfere. We, we spent 45 minutes documenting everything because they had to assume, or they did assume, that we were Russian scientists. Who else would be there? And uh, so we documented everything, and we went back to... Uh, to, to push the boat, the small boat out, their large ship was a mile off. And because it had a British flag, it looked like a Russian flag from the distance and um, the red ensign. So what happened is that I was uh, pushing the boat out and a Soviet soldier came up and he pointed at the boat and he said, Stoeta. and I said, Aeto Zodiac, it's in a Zodiac. And he said, at the Mercury, which means he's pointing to the Mercury outboard engine. And that's when I realized we were in trouble. So I just turned my back on him quickly to push the boat out. And I said to the guys quietly, uh, the two men in the boat. I said, what's, what's he doing? He says, well, he, he's getting his rifle down. I said, well, then laugh and smile and wave. And that's what they did. And that's very confusing to him. So then he turned around and began to run up the hill because obviously he didn't know what to do. And we got back to the boat with the evidence that we had collected. And then we carried on. And about an hour later, two helicopter gunships came out of nowhere with big red stars on the side and were circling. And I just ignored them. And then about 45 minutes after that, a large uh, Soviet frigate came up real fast and came up alongside. And I ignored him, too. And they were pulling the tarps off their guns and looking like they were ready to blow us out of the water. And the uh, captain came on board and he said... Uh, uh, I, I mean, he, he came on the radio and he said, stop your ship immediately and prepare to be boarded by the Soviet Union. And I answered that we didn't have room for the Soviet Union, so we weren't going to stop. And, um, you know, the thing with navies, they don't know how to deal with no. It's very confusing to them because they're, they're, they're expecting their intimidation is going to work. And I could see what was going on through this guy's head. Is he back, He's on the phone to Moscow saying, what am I supposed to do here? Because we don't even know what this is. And they had flags from all the different nationalities of the crew and and. Um, as he was uh, getting ready and he's coming in alongside and suddenly a, a gray whale surfaced between the two ships in, in blue. So there was like this rainbow of spray between the two ships and uh, he fell back a bit and then I can and then he started to pursue again. But this time we had just crossed back into the U into U.S. water. So he couldn't uh, he couldn't uh, follow. And I was able to get that evidence uh, to the International Whaling Commission. So magical, you know, so mystical that it's it's happened so many times where an animal will show up in protection of a human and um mm -hmm, on some level so thank you very much and getting our stories mixed up because we've been reading so many in the last couple of days plus working on our convergence so thank you and one of the things that paul my partner and i were talking about during this time is you know sometimes you seem so fearless and I'm sure that there's fear that surges through you that adrenaline you know fight or flight fear that happens what happens for you I I, I mean you there must be such a deep well of strength to preserve and to save these animals that you're working from somewhere else well I think the first thing that you have to develop when you do this kind of work is a sense of detachment I mean, you can't to, to see whales or dolphins being killed, to see uh, seals being clubbed and skinned alive is uh, very traumatic. So you have to you have to be almost like a surgeon in a way. And at the time, you don't allow your emotions to uh, intervene. So you have to have a very detached look at what's going on there. And you have to make sure you don't get angry. And that uh, during a confrontation, I find myself uh, I'm, I'm almost sort of. Um, out-of-body experience in a way. I'm just making decisions on what to do, where to go, uh, without, there's no sense of fear, there's no sense of anything, because you basically cancel all your emotions to deal with the situation at hand. 
it's sort of like a surgeon doing surgery. You know, you can't allow yourself to be emotionally involved with uh, with with what you're doing, and otherwise you're going to make a mistake. So uh, I've developed that more and more and more over the years, so that I there's there's really to be to be honest, there is no fear because you just don't allow it to uh, to to enter into the uh, into the situation. Have the crews that you've worked with been able to cultivate the same detachment? Or I can imagine that some of the people on that on that boat when the Soviet uh, guns were aimed at you must have been uh, pretty fearful. Some are and some aren't. Actually, I had to lock the wheelhouse so to keep uh, some of the crew out who were panicking. But um, that's the advantage of a, a ship. It's a hierarchy of command. So as long as the captain and the officers are not uh, are in control, then there's not going to be a problem. My father was a sailor, so I was just the skipper. And boy, I learned how to follow orders really, really well, because if he was if there was something going on that he was a little concerned about, you knew how to follow orders or else uh, you're going to be in trouble. So a very, but a very uh, less um, less important ship, that's for sure, less important boat. Well, all ships are pretty much run on the in the same way as a hierarchy of command. <laughs> I actually, uh, I actually spent a number of years in the Mer in the Scandinavian Merchant Marine and also uh, in the Canadian Coast Guard. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, obviously, you've had some uh, unfortunate experiences. Well, with with a silver lining, obviously, but you've had some experience of being forced out of the organizations that you yourself have co-founded. So, you know, Greenpeace first and then Sea Shepherd uh, second. Um, wh what's your, what's your um, explanation for why so many radical organizations uh, seem to get co-opted at some point? They, they, you know, they come to some sort of truce with with the government, with government agencies, and they they really become quite moderate and uh, more concerned about their own self-preservation. So, what's your take uh, on that, having experienced it so so directly? I think the more successful uh, an organization becomes, the more inclined they are to uh, become conservative, uh, more concerned with their own self-perpetuation, with their comfortable jobs, whatever. Um, and uh, you know, it's it, it happened with the Sierra Club with David Brower. It happened with Earth First with David Foreman. It's uh, the problem is is that those of us who are involved with the activism part of it, uh, we tend to trust other people to handle the administration, and then before you know it, suddenly the um, you know the bean counters are in control. And uh, and, and uh, about five years ago, they began to refer to me as the Watson problem. And that mean, meaning that uh, I was, and and, and last year, uh, they just came right out and said I was too comp controversial, too confrontational, and uh, uh, that I was an embarrassment to this organization, which I had founded. And, uh, but now they are in control of it. And so they ousted me from the organization, got control of all of the assets and the ships and that. And now they're pretty much doing nothing but what other organizations do, you know, and I, um, I decided, well, we're going to carry on and continue to do what we've always done. So I set up the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And the reason I named it after me is I'm going to say, okay, try and take that away from me. It's got my own name in it. Uh, but we're working still with Sea Shepherd uh, France and Sea Shepherd Brazil, uh, who remaining to the, they're remaining true to the original objectives. 
And what this uh, one guy who's a property developer from uh, Florida, uh, he um, covertly registered the trademark for the name I created and the logos I designed. He registered the trademark in 75 different countries and then proclaimed himself the owner of the entire thing. Now, I set up Sea Shepherd to be a movement, not to be an organization of independent entities. So that's why France and Brazil could carry on. I think to me, the, the most outrageous thing was Sea Shepherd Australia, which I was on the board of directors and uh, they forced my resignation because I kept asking this one question, why are you partnered with a fishing company? Uh, they're getting support from the Austral Fishing Company, which by the way is 50% owned by the uh, Marua Daichiro Japanese Fishing Company, the very same company that owned uh, the Pirate Whaler Sierra that I had tracked down and rammed back in 1979. So that was a real slap in, my, in the face. And why are they doing that? Because um, Austral Fisheries got them their tax status in Australia, gave them a, a huge donation and um, have been like basically supporting them. And I, it's, a basic, it's, a, it's a sellout really on that. We can't, our policy has always been we're against fishing. And there's no such thing, as far as I'm concerned, as sustainable fishing. It's it's just a con. There's no there's no sustainable fishery anywhere in the world. Uh, all the oceans are collapsing, and uh, but now they're supporting so-called sustainable fishery, and now they're getting partnerships with the Mexican government, with African governments, um, and it's 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 really a disgrace. But uh, I have no control over. It. But I do have control over what I do. And uh, so I can continue to do what I've done. I have to start all over again, but you know, I think you actually get more done when you're poor than you do when you're wealthy. <laughs> yeah. So can you speak a little bit on your new foundation? Yeah, I said it, uh, it's the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And um, I, when I left uh, Sea Shepherd in last summer, I didn't have anything, but I got a call from Jean-Paul DeJoria, who's been a longtime supporter for Sea Shepherd. And they had totally trashed the boat. They had scrapped the boat that he had sponsored for them, didn't even tell him. And um, so he called them up and said, what'd you do that for? And they said, well, it's getting old. And we decided to get rid of it, which it wasn't. And they said, well, why didn't you just give it to Paul? And he said, well, we offered it to him, but he re he re refused it. And I said, no, they did never even talked to me. So he said, find a ship and uh, I'll buy it. So we found a ship, a former Scottish fisheries uh, patrol vessel, and uh, he bought it for us. And now we had our first ship. And uh, we now have a ship in the uh, Amazon to protect the river dolphins. And we're now getting a smaller boat here in France. And Sea Shepherd U United Kingdom changed its name to the Captain Paul Watson Foundation. And uh, they have, uh, they've also acquired a new vessel. So we're building up uh, our Navy again. And uh, it'll still be doing the same thing we've always been doing. So they can have the logo and the name and the assets. I don't really, really care because we don't have time to, to be fighting all of this stuff. The only problem is, is they're suing me. And, um, you know, that, that because basically Pritam Singh, the one who took over Sea Shepherd USA, his, he actually threatened me. He says, if you, if you go against me, I will use an army of lawyers to destroy you and bury you. And I say, okay, well, go ahead and do that, but I don't have time to, and I'm not going to spend my time defending myself from you. I mean, he's, he's a Florida property developer who, by the way, uh, uh, the media in the key, in the Florida Keys describes as the Donald Trump of the Florida Keys, and that. So uh, he's a he's quite ruthless, but uh, 
and he intimidated the directors on Sea Shepherd Global. That's why they dismissed me. I was dismissed with an email. There wasn't even a meeting or a vote. And when Lamy and Lamy, the president of Sea Shepherd France, uh, defended me, they dismissed her too. And the reason they did that is there, he he told them that he controlled the trademarks and he could shut them down. So they were afraid they're going to lose their jobs and their positions. So they they went along and did what he's told. So the movement basically got co-opted by an individual. And uh, so we can either fight it or we continue to do what we've always been doing. And I think that's what we have to do is to continue what we've always been doing and not be sidetracked. So you had said in your book that there was some feeling of being liberated when this happened. Can you explain a little bit what you meant by that? Well, I felt I was liberated from the growing bureaucracy. Uh, I mean, we were doing real well with Sea Shepherd until uh, we had this very successful television show, Whale Wars, on uh, Animal Planet and Discovery. And that made us very, very big and got a lot of donations. And uh, and uh, and that's what brought in all these people who wanted to control that part of it and everything. So, uh, uh, so uh, I, I felt that I couldn't do anything anymore. You know, I was told I couldn't do this. They were telling me what I could write, what I could post, what I could, uh, where, what I could say. And I said, I, I'm not going to do that. They offered me $300,000 a year to be a figurehead to say nothing, do nothing, write nothing. And they said, that's a good deal. I said, no, it isn't. Not for me, it's not a good deal. He says, well, think of your family. I says, I am thinking of my family. I don't want my sons to know that I sold out to the likes of you. Yeah. So obviously one of the motivations for co-opting an organization is to defang it, right? To stop it from interfering with uh, economic activity. <clears throat> is there also a profit motive? I mean, can these... Can these organizations actually make money? Is it only through funding or? I think in the case of this guy, Pritam Singh, it's not, and he's he's not Indian, actually. He's a white guy who changed his name to Pritam Singh. Uh, he, um, his motivation is power and control. It's not money. He's very, very wealthy. So it's, a, it's basically about controlling things. And uh, he, he did it with a, uh, controlling Thich Nhat Hanh's Buddhist church. That was one of them. He tried to take over Ocean Alliance and do the same thing there. Uh, so that that's his motivation, really. Now, the other directors in Australia and Europe and the, the, the so-called global board, to them, it's it's a job. And uh, they're very insecure in their position on uh, They don't want to lose this job that, that, that they have. And I've never, ever regarded what I do as a job. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, this is what I do. And, you know, for 25 years, I worked for Sea Shepherd for nothing. Uh, I, you know, survived by uh, writing and giving lectures. But, um, you know, so I don't really need uh, to be paid by by the order. I'm not, I'm not paid by the Captain Watson Paul Foundation now. So much. I'm, I would really love to um, tell our listeners right now to go out and get a copy of this book because it's awe and it's it brings us to a new level of what one human can accomplish in one lifetime. And you, like you say in your book, you're never going to retire. Can you give us some good news? I mean, the seal, the seal hunt uh, in Canada, which, ah, it's, you know, we're, we're coming to you from Canada. So it's like, oh man, you know, we're, we're such a patriarch, Patriotic, patriarch, yeah, patriarch. 
<laughs> society here we think that we're so liberated and free in Canada and in some ways we are but holy moly so we'll just end with some some great stories of some progress that you've seen uh, through your time well in 1974 when I began to fight for whales uh, I would say since then until now we've uh, abolished 90 90 percent of the world's whaling operations have been shut down there is no pelagic whaling Japan may return to the southern ocean if they do we plan to be down there to meet them if they do but the only whaling nations now are uh, Norway uh, Iceland which I think Iceland's pretty much all, almost over uh, Japan and Denmark and uh, we're working to, to stop that so it's been an, an incredible achievement since we began, the countries that have stopped whaling have been Australia and Chile and Brazil and Spain, uh, South Korea, uh, South Africa, uh, and the pirate whaling operations that we shut down. So it's been a, a lot of progress, a lot of uh, over that time. The other thing that has been really a real revolution is uh, veganism. You know, I, I mean, in the 70s, nobody knew what a vegan was. I mean, I think you're from the planet Vega or Vega or something. And, um, you know, the, even being a vegetarian was a pretty radical thing to do back then. And, you know, our ships have always been uh, vegan vessels. Uh, well, since 1999, prior to that, they were vegetarian. And I think that uh, when you look at it today, for instance, I'm in Paris right now. And now Paris 20 years ago, if you had asked for a vegan meal, you know, they'd look at you like you're just completely crazy. But uh, I, I see all sorts of vegan things on all the cafe menus and things like that. So it really shows how a movement can grow and make a difference and be very, very influential. And I remember just seven years ago, and I was in southern France, and uh, I said, oh, it looks like you got a vegan a veggie burger here on the menu. And the waiter says, we have to put it there, although otherwise those vegans, all they eat is French fries. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's making, the progress is being made a lot of, and, and I think that a lot of people's minds have changed to be more kinder to animals, more concerned about the environment, more concerned about climate change and that. And um, so, so that's good news in many ways. The other thing is, uh, I think that we have to change people's understanding of uh, how they view the world and our place in it. I actually set up a church. My, my church is called the Church of Biocentrism. It's not really a religious thing. It's more of a science-based thing. But it's trying to uh, have people understand that we have to be part of the ecosystem, which can't be dominant over it. And uh, the three laws of ecology, diversity, interdependence, finite resources, that we have to live in harmony with all of these other species. And if we don't, we're, we're simply not going to survive. And um, I like to equate it this way. If you consider the Earth to be a spaceship, which is what it is, uh, on this incredible voyage around the Milky Way galaxy, and every spaceship has a life support system that provides us with the food we eat, the air we breathe, and regulates climate and temperature. And that life support system is operated by a crew of engineers. And not us. We're the, we're the passengers. We're having a wonderful time amusing ourselves. But what we are doing is we're killing engineers. We're murdering the engineers. Those crew members that keep everything running, the bees, the worms, the trees, the fishes, those creatures which actually make it possible for us to be here. And we would not survive without them. Since 1950, we've seen a 40% diminishment in phytoplankton in the ocean, that is aquatic plants a 40% diminishment of the group of species that provide us with 70% of the oxygen in the air we breathe and sequesters enormous amounts of CO2. The reality is this, if phytoplankton disappears from the ocean, we die. We do not live on this planet without phytoplankton. Now, I got a call from a reporter for the Fox News a few years ago, and he said, I heard that you had a lecture and you said that bees, trees, worms, and fish were more important than people. 
And I said, yeah, I said that. He said, how could you say something so outrageous? It's such an unchristian thing to say. How could you say something like that? Well, I said it because they're more important than people. And uh, I can explain that by simply saying this. They can live here without us. We can't live here without them. That makes them more important. We need them. They don't need us. A world without bees, a world without worms, a world without trees is not a world, and a world without phytoplankton is not a world that we can survive in. So we have to humble ourselves and understand that we're not the most important species on the planet. We're part of a community that we have to either work with and live with or else we're not going to survive. Well, as we were getting ready, reading your book this weekend, just before that, a whole swarm of bees showed up and are trying to... Uh, trying to make home in our in our log house honeybees and 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 hundreds and thousands of them keep coming keep coming i don't know beautiful sign i think of recovery i'm actually seeing a little bit more insects the last year so uh, i'm hopeful you know and and as silash dr silash rao says as he's a systems engineer one of those engineers that we need here that it, you know, the trajectory that we're on at quick as quickly as we're wiping out the ecosystems and the species diversity, where we need to have a very close to a vegan world by 2026 in order to survive. We need to be thinking that way, meaning that we don't use animals for anything. We leave them alone to do what they need to do, and they will recover. Maybe that could be our last um, words from you. Is how quickly will the earth recover if we leave her alone and we all go vegan, Captain Watson? Well, the earth is very resilient. The ocean is very, very resilient. And uh, at the COP21 conference in Paris in 2015, I said that if you want to save the ocean, all you have to do is nothing. And by that, I mean, leave it alone. Let it recover. We have to put an end to heavy gear industrialized fishing operations, to ocean mining, to dumping pollution, uh, everything from plastic to chemicals in the ocean. Leave it alone. And in 50 years, it'll be fully re recovered. We saw the recovery during COVID. We saw the recovery during uh, World War I, World War II, uh, when the fishing fleets weren't out there. It recovered, and, and it, can be, it can be done. So we need that moratorium if it's going to, you know, if it's going to recover. But it is, but it is very, very resilient. And um, I think if you leave things alone, it's just a matter of time. Uh, but the problem is you reach a tipping point. You remove too many species and then it can't recover. So like the codfish, the codfish, they, they can't recover because we reduced it to a, a position. Not many people realize that at the turn of the 1900 to 2000, uh, the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, one codfish was about a meter to a meter and a half long average, sometimes two meters long. Now 18 inches. And, uh, and but they, what they forget is that when the draggers went out there and scooped them all up, up and everything, is the young cod don't know where to go. They need the older cod to guide them, to teach them. And people don't even understand that. Maybe that's why you call it a school of fishes. I don't know. But the thing is, is that they need that. They need guidance. And uh, and when we wipe out all the elders and the uh, younger ones just have no idea uh, on what to do. One of the things I was thinking about earlier is why do people like Justin Trudeau and everything do what the fishermen want them to do? And I actually coined a word for it. I, <clears throat> I call it homo, homo uh, well, no, homo which is politicians fear of fishermen <laughs> and uh, fishermen and farmers politicians live in total fear of fishermen and farmers because they're such a powerful political base so whatever they want they usually get uh, to the point that uh, decisions to protect resources are taken long after uh, when it's too late 
Well, here's to uh, leaving the oceans alone next few years. Let's see if we can make that happen because we're, uh, we're running out of time. We're running out of time. So. Oh, and one, one other thing is that the, the incredible decline on insect populations, which uh, pe people might think is a good thing, but it isn't. I mean, I remember 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't go anywhere without having windshields. You have to constantly clean your windshield of insects. It doesn't happen like that anymore. And uh, not to that degree. And uh, so if insects disappear, we're in big trouble. Thank you so much for your time, Captain Watson. Yes, thank you. And this is our little uh, mantra that we do in, uh, in our community of a million vegan grandmothers, but namaste vegan. <laughs> <laughs> namaste vegan. Thank you. Thank you very much.